Devin, I got a question for you. What's that, Tyler? Do you have an advanced directive? Oh, this is a question I hate being asked because of my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In part because like I stress in both my teaching and in clinical work that having an advanced directive is pretty important. And my answer is that I do not have one. What? (laughs) Um, And well, what I have in lieu of an advanced directive is a letter to my husband that specifies my wishes, but also tells him that he should feel the right to do what he thinks is best based on the needs of our family. So that, and I wouldn't begrudge him any decision that he made. Yeah. And, and that's in part because of just how I've seen sometimes the advanced directives get used against family members, like that it often trumps and I really want his decision to trump um, whatever decision I would have made. And so I have sort of instructions to him. So Chris, if you're listening, it's on my computer. Uh, you can find it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it saved his file heading in case I'm almost dead. It's with our wills. Um, yeah, so I have that instead. Um, so, uh, but I, I hate admitting that out loud. So, because uh, I think that advanced directives are really important for some people. Um, and so is a formal um, proxy designation. So a, a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Do you have one? Uh, <laughs> it's funny you should ask. No, I don't have one. <laughs> and what's funny about both of us, you know, both being clinical ethicists working in this space and also consistently recommending people that they get one, we, we both don't have one. Yeah. Um, so a, a, a couple of colleagues of, uh, of ours, um, Jason Wasserman and Mark Naven, who were both on, on previous episodes of, of the podcast, uh, we did a survey of clinical ethicists asking that question. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, an advanced directive? And what you know, does it have both parts where it both names somebody to make decisions as well as provides your um, wishes? And we found that uh, a surprising amount of clinical ethicists do not have a, a, a fully completed advanced directive. Wow. We'll put a link to that article. It got published in the Journal of Medical Ethics uh, maybe two years ago, but uh, I'll put a link in the it, online to it. So why do you think that is? So we kind of, we, we, we were trying to come up with an explanation. And this is what we think, that people who work closely with advanced directives or people who have patients who have advanced directives kind of get a firsthand uh, firsthand appreciation of the limitations of the advanced directive. Mm-hmm. So advanced directives generally have two parts, right? They have the part where somebody is being appointed to be the proxy decision maker. And then they also have a section in which they can document or kind of formalize some of their wishes, what they want to happen in the case of, you know, kind of end of life or, or whatever. And what we found is that more people, more clinical ethicists actually have a person designated than they do have wishes formalized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's probably if there is an overall utility benefit to advanced directives, it is in the naming of the person to be the proxy. And then if you name somebody who you trust, uh, the wishes become less important. Documenting the wishes become less important because the person that you would empowered to make decisions presumably knows you and what, what wishes should be made. So that's kind of how we uh, 
we, we, we talked through the results that we found. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I completely agree is that you see how they can be used and interpreted in weird and complicated ways. And really the person is more important. And I bet most of us clinical ethicists have had those conversations with the person that we'd want making our decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I get around to making an advanced directive, if I ever do, my plan is to make it as most chaotic as possible. <laughs> oh, so <geez. laughs> I, I want I want my my demise to involve a clinical ethics consultation that stumps whoever the clinical ethics is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna give decision making power about nutrition, hydration to somebody and then ventilator that, that decision making to somebody else and dialysis to somebody else and and, and make them all conflicting obviously. So they mm-hmm. they all have their instructions but they can't all work together. Oh, good good luck, Tyler's friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> because you know what, Devin? A world without me is chaos. And so I should go out with as much chaos as possible. I totally agree. So this will relate to our episode today where we talk about having to make really hard decisions with uh, family members who weren't appointed um, without any advanced directive indicating what the patient, him or herself, would have wanted. And in this case... This case, man, an advanced directive would have been really helpful. Yeah. Yep. Get ready for another difficult, but ultimately really interesting episode. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, a podcast where we discuss bioethics and all the complex questions related to medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer, and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. And she is the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stone. So today we're pleased to be joined by Barry Huberman. Dr. Barry Huberman is the clinical director in the Division of Medical Ethics at the Weill Cornell Medical College. And for those of you who are interested in becoming clinical ethicists, she's also the clinical director of the Clinical Ethics Fellowship at Weill Cornell. So Barry, thanks for joining us. uh, My great pleasure to be here, Devin. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, So you came to us with a case that you said you still think about. So give us a little taste of of how this case began. Sure. So it began with me asleep. Um, I was awakened at about 5.30 in the morning by a surgical ICU uh, fellow who basically said to me that there's a a 55-year-old woman uh, in the SICU, in the surgical ICU, who had come in as a trauma overnight, uh, who needed urgent dialysis because of an acute kidney failure that happened as part of the trauma and that the family was refusing. They felt that that was very time urgent and needed to be done or the patient wouldn't survive. um, And the family was saying no. That is how that began. Um, Mm -hmm. And I asked some questions uh, of that person, of the fellow who called me, what's this all about? Uh, It turns out that uh, this woman had, um, had a witnessed jump from a very high place Uh, into an icy cold river and had been pulled out of the river after being submerged for about 15 minutes in the water um, with CPR performed 
uh, in the field outside of the hospital. Intubated, they got heart and circulation back. And all night they had been, you know, stabilizing her and working on her. Uh, they really needed to do this dialysis. And the family, which were uh, two adult sons and an ex-husband who uh, was still reportedly very close uh, to the patient and involved, were all saying uh, she would not want any of this. Uh, so no. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I think this is the first case that we've had so far this season dealing with intentional harm. So uh, suicide, right, Devin? This is our first one about suicide. Mm, mm, no. Well, it, <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the, so we've had a couple of episodes now where the patient was requesting physician aid in dying, but that's sort of quite different yeah. than this sort of case. So yes, this yeah. would be the first one of an adult who, um, well, and we don't know this yet, but when you hear what you just said, Barry, what I assume is that this was a potential suicide attempt, although I don't want to jump to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But you might suspect that. Is that what you suspected? Yes. And that's how the team had presented it, uh, that, you know, the jump was witnessed and appears to have been intentional and, you know, a car driven to a very high spot. Um, and a passerby trying to dissuade her, and she left anyway. Um, and and this is not it's not the everyday case uh, for a clinical ethics consultant, but it's not my first or last either. There have been some before and since, and so this is the kind of thing that, as you probably know, does happen that that a person comes upon their clinical their critical illness through a suicide attempt, mm -hmm. and then all the complexities of trying to figure out how to care for them. Uh, after that. So that's, that's where this is. Right. And, and my first thought is she's, I mean, young for, I think, you know, maybe not in the grand scheme of life, but for a medical patient in the SICU is on the younger side and her children, I suppose are not, I mean, they're, they're also young. They're I'm sure adults, as you said, but, mm -hmm. but this is not a person who's, you know, 90 and, and would have a very hard time getting through this potentially, but 55 that that's, there's a potential for a lot more life to be lived. And mm -hmm. so that's something that strikes me. Um, what else, Tyler, are you thinking about with this case? Uh, I'm always interested when cases come in over their night. Um, mm -hmm. So our, our clinical ethics service is 24 seven and where I trained was 24 seven as well, but it's quite unusual in my experience to get things kind of after bankers hours. So it, do you get, consulted very often, like overnight or on the weekends, or is this also unusual, the timing of it? Right. So not nearly as often as during the day, of course. I mean, I, I would say maybe 5% of our cases. So it's not, I mean, this is a very large urban setting, so it's not rare, um, but it's not every day either. At least a couple of times a month, um, someone is awakened um, and maybe a weekend a month one of us is, has to have something off hours. And it usually, you know, the institution learns pretty quickly that um, when we don't staff, it's not like sort of a nurse that's on a night shift. So they know to sort of call when it really matters and can't wait. Um, so there are some fairly high acuity things that come. And one of the interesting things about responding to something like that, as you probably know, if you've been awakened is, you know, that's a pretty shocking reality to awaken to, to process um, and try to figure out, well, how, how do we go about 
exploring the answer to that question. So it's hard during the day and it's even harder at night. And part of course of what you have to do is slow things down a little bit uh, and get your bearings. Mm -hmm. And so that's some of what we did. Um, you know, we had to, one of the things I find in a situation like this is I'm asking myself, why as a clinical ethicist am I being asked about whether someone should receive an urgent medical intervention in the middle mm -hmm. of a trauma? And that's always a, a cue for me to realize that something else is going on and I need to try to figure out what it is because typically clinicians don't ask ethicists those kinds of questions. They know what they should do next. And so I began to ask uh, a little bit more about the patient to try to hear because the clinicians clearly wanted to perform the dialysis and it was you know, expected to be a temporary thing. Um, but it was a very important piece of the care in, in this sort of hours into this trauma. And one of the things I learned is that despite, you know, I heard that the patient had been submerged underwater all that time. And so I'm thinking about the brain and I'm thinking about the goals of care and I'm thinking about how important it is to be responsive to families and that we as, you know, a clinical interdisciplinary group don't usually know better, even though sometimes it feels like we do. Um, why are we in this bind? What's what's missing here? And I discover that uh, despite all that time underwater, um, that she had begun to follow commands when sedation was lifted. Oh, goodness. Well, that wow. changes things a, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever it is that her sons are telling us, we also know that if we were to stop now, that we can't get her input on this. If she's starting to follow commands, gosh, it might not be too much longer until she could in some way communicate something. Um, and so now I'm, I'm worried that we might cut off that possibility by stopping treatment now. Right, right. And that's what everyone is worried about. But of course, you know, the other side of that, um, and maybe this is one of the reasons why this is, it, one of many reasons this is a case that sort of haunts me is, I always think about, well, what if we take the other path? Um, and and so there, there are two sides to every path at minimum, right? Um, if we continue to give this person a chance to survive, um, what if they do? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we don't know really what that beginning of raising an arm uh, as, a, as a following of commands is going to add up to for this person. And so um, the immediate reaction is that someone doing a lot worse would be scary. Me as a clinical ethicist, of course, I focus on that, but I'm also a little concerned about the other option, which is what if they make it uh, and have to live in a way they really didn't want, which is mm -hmm. part of the burden of trying to sort out this kind of problem in, in the moment. So sometimes I've heard that called this sort of window of opportunity, where if we continue on the path, we might get this patient to a place where they actually don't need a ton of machines to survive anymore, but we can't re then remove machines to allow them to die. So we've actually placed mm -hmm. them in a state they would never want to be in, but there's no option for removing care that would allow a natural death because we've sort of gotten them over that hurdle. Whereas the opposite would be, you know, limiting the care now to allow them to die a natural death with the always the lingering possibility that they might have gotten much better to the point where they would have wanted to survive in that state that they ended up in. So you've right. got this window of opportunity where 
if there ever is an emergency consult, this I can see this being sort of an emergency consult because that window might be quite short. So if we do this thing, we're going to mm -hmm. get them over that hump. If we don't do this thing, we're going to allow them to die. And if we don't make the decision in the next couple of hours or right. a day or so, then we're stuck. Right. And initially, this person was unrepresented, uh, not when I got the call, meaning, you know, at first there was no family or friends known when the person came to the emergency room. Uh, she received all the trauma care and the aggressive care to get her to this point without anyone uh, being found or known. It took a while uh, to identify her and to find her sons and her ex. Um, and you have to wonder, you know, if if I had gotten that phone call in the at the same hour uh, for an unrepresented person, I probably wouldn't have gotten that phone call. They would have probably just done it. But if the person had been stable and Sometimes we do get phone calls for people who, who don't have anyone and they're already sort of stabilizing and uh, wanting to do something that would ordinarily require a consent. It would, it would have been fairly straightforward for me to say, well, I have no idea what this person would want. And I am a little worried about the facts of the case. I'm a little worried about someone being submerged for a long time, um, showing some signs of brain recovery, but not knowing how far that would go. And depending on the burden of what I was being asked, you know, if someone asked me, can we remove a limb in that situation, I would take a, a gasp of a breath, but suppose we would all presume that the person would prefer to survive, since most people learn uh, to live uh, in ways that we don't expect and, and we don't want to, you know, make any judgments about a person's quality of life, we would have then all been moving forward and worrying, but moving forward. But here we have people who we presume care um, and look out for the best interest of the person and worry about them and want the best for them. And they're saying, stop. Uh, and that, that in and of itself uh, is very sort of jarring. We're so accustomed as clinical ethicists to magnifying the voice of the patient through their surrogates or people who could make decisions for them that it's it's very uncomfortable to be tempted to push back against that. Um, and that was precisely where it was in this moment. Yeah, uh, patients who don't have anybody to speak for them, or you use the, the term un, unrepresented, which is I think the, the most common term for patients who find themselves in these situations, it really is a, a challenge to accurate and appropriate decision-making by proxy because we really have almost zero information about what the patient's preferences are. Mm -hmm. And we end up mm -hmm. either imagining or pretending like we, like we know or, or can, can make some sort of assumptions about what individuals want. And then when we get some some sort of information, whether it's good information or bad information, that starts to fill in that picture a little bit, it's really easy to start jumping to conclusions. Um, mm -hmm. And so be like you said earlier, slowing down, taking a breath uh, as a clinical ethicist to try to work through the process is so important. Right. I think, you know, maybe the more common term for people with no one is unbefriended. Uh, it has a long history, you know, in the lore and, and in the law uh, and in the literature. I don't particularly like it though, because I find that people who don't have representation or people who couldn't stand up for surrogates very often do have people who care about them or friends. So I, I kind of stick with unrepresented. But um, it also leaves room for even people who are trying to do a good job of 
coming up with the right course of action for a person or the best course of action for a person. You really have to be aware of biases. You know, in, in a situation like this, you suddenly are faced with an ableist bias. If you're if you're not careful, mm -hmm. uh, you overlook the high qualities of life that you know people with disabilities can have just by imagining someone who would be different from how they started. And we have to sort of say that sort of stuff out loud so that we don't all lean on this notion of quality of life and what that may mean to different people. So that's one of those things that can come up with someone who has no one. Um, but in this case, there were um, some very strong voices uh, and they were reportedly getting really angry that the team was continuing to treat and they knew that some ethicist was gonna get a phone call. And so they were poised to be angry at us. And I worried about that too, because we needed them uh, to help us understand the person we were caring for. And so, uh, you know, in my assessment, uh, even though I was worried, as we talked about, about both the window closing, as you put it, Devin, and the, um, and the possibility that the person could survive and, and then have a voice or have a quality of life they may wish, um, you know, immediately in my mind, I'm like, I don't know enough about the prognosis here. Uh, we we have to know more, at least, no, there's very little certainty in medicine, but we at least need to know a little more about the prognosis. Um, and what she had already been through was so much more burdensome than uh, using the catheter already in place to run some dialysis. Uh, it wasn't, you know, a surgery that was being proposed or something that in and of itself would change the outcome uh, for the negative, but something that um, is very common in trauma care and critical care medicine to, to use a few sessions of dialysis to overcome an acute kidney injury. Uh, that, you know, my reaction was if you feel that it's really urgent and there's no time to sit and talk more with the family about it, um, and it has to be done and it has to be done now, then do it. And we will then revisit the rest of the care as the time unfolds with this family to try to understand. Um, but, you know, I was long ago uh, taught by a mentor not to find yourself palliating something you don't really understand. Um, and it felt in this situation that was not enough prognostic clarity to have, um, we didn't even know if they were surrogates or healthcare agents, which we can talk about a little bit, but to have people who, you know, seemed to care about this person and we believed that on face value, um, insisting that someone who had just off, jumped off something um, wouldn't have wanted these things. You know, we worried a lot about what they may be thinking about and what other factors may be influencing their belief that this person wouldn't want these things. So at this point in the case, did you meet with or speak with the family members? So if it had been during the day and I could run across the street uh, to the hospital and do that, I probably would have done that. Um, we can, you know, I considered having them get on the phone. They didn't want to. Uh, they were mad <laughs> and they had been getting spoken to for about an hour by the clinical staff. And so they didn't really want to engage. Um, but that would have been useful, I think, or, or it might have been more confusing. Uh, I'm not sure how compelling they would have been. The facts of the, were as they were, uh, but they did not want to talk to us at that time. So you want to err, Barry, on the side of life. That makes sense to me. We need more information. 
They're not willing to give it to us right now. If we have to make a decision, we're going to make a decision to preserve life mm -hmm. until we get more information. And even if that means the window of opportunity is closing. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, I think sort of the elephant in the room is this idea that you've sort of briefly touched on of suicide and a presumption perhaps by some, maybe her family, maybe others, that she wouldn't have wanted to live because, and the evidence being that she wanted to end her life. Mm -hmm. And often what I tell my students when these cases come up is that, um, and you would know this better as a clinical psychologist than I do, but a lot of people regret their suicide attempts when they do survive. And so we shouldn't presume simply because this might have been a suicide attempt that she wouldn't want to continue living. Would that be your mm -hmm. presumption? Um, in fact, it's it's backed up by data. Most people who attempt suicide and survive do not die by suicide, ultimately. Um, it's fewer than 10% who do. Uh, so I think the great majority of people who survive suicide attempts um, don't die that way, uh, whether they regret it or, or simply are able to look at life differently over the course of going forward. So the mere act of having attempted suicide would not be enough. Um, of course, the worry is, who is this person who attempted suicide and what is the context of this person and what is their mental health like um, and what has it ever been like? And one of the things we discovered as the hours, the, you know, so the the, the dialysis got done and, um, you know, that was the beginning and not the end of this, this story, right? So as the hours went by, we were able to um, learn from uh, both the family and the passerby that the patient had a very long uh, history of abusing alcohol uh, and was intoxicated at the time mm. um, and had a long history of depression, um, which uh, had been, for the family, refractory to treatment. Mm. Um, we didn't really know quite what that meant. Um, and, you know, we also learned that their relationships were tangled and complicated um, as a result of both the substance use and the mental health history. And um, and you're right, Devin, they were not 50-year-old um, adult children. They were in their 30s. So they were really adults, but their experiences with our patient were complex. Uh, their feelings for the patient were complex. Um, but again, they know the person and we don't. And the ex-spouse was uh, not eligible to be a surrogate because in New York State, you know, when you're divorced, that that's not what happens. But they certainly were part of the discourse and had an ongoing relationship with the patient. And, and so we were trying really hard to get to know the patient because there were other decisions that had to be made then as as the next 24 to 48 hours went on. All right, so they haven't told us a convincing enough story at this point to lead you to believe that it's really what she would have wanted was to not continue living, to remove those machines. So mm -hmm. what are the other choices that mm -hmm. we now need to make? Right, so um, so this person is now on a ventilator um, and had developed a pneumonia. She also had some broken bones um, from impact with the water, at least one of which was going to require a surgery at some point. She was um, still just following simple commands when they raised, took the, uh, tried some sedation holidays in the next 24 or so hours. 
she was becoming uh, too agitated to, to really lift the sedation. So they kept her sedated. So we really couldn't have her voice just yet. But still, on light sedation, was still very basically following commands. So we had some good reason to believe that there was uh, some hope for, for her brain, but there were also reasons to worry about it when, when you're agitated like that. And the family was asking then to have the ventilator withdrawn mm-hmm. um, because they were convinced that this was not just the suicide attempt, uh, but uh, uh, that this person was tired of living had for the longest time talked about dying, um, had struggled for so long through a, a variety of life circumstances, um, had always been depressed, um, had drank on and off, but it had been a really long time since they had seen her or been in touch with her. It had been you know, almost a year for one of the adult children um, and many months for the other. She was sort of living in a way they didn't, Uh, weren't quite connected with and they were convinced that not only the suicide attempt but that it was her authentic wish to no longer live and so they felt that our ongoing critical care was um, wrong and intrusive and they persisted in being very upset uh, with the clinical teams and with us Um, and so they wanted that vent withdrawn to allow her to die that's interesting. That's not. It wasn't necessarily the the dialysis that they were objecting for, but it was all types of aggressive, life prolonging treatment. Is that right? So it sounds like yes. What it what came to be clear was that they wanted to allow her to die. They thought that was right, and everything that the teams were doing to interfere with that uh, was upsetting to them. Um, they focused on interventions. For example, they didn't ask us to stop medicines and things. I don't know that they were thinking about that, but. First, it was dialysis, and then when they realized that she was on a vent, she had developed a pneumonia uh, in the context of those 24 hours. But the teams expected her to recover from that pneumonia. But between her mental status and the pneumonia, they couldn't quite wean her yet. Mm-hmm. So they still had hopes that they could, the clinical teams had hopes that they could um, bring her around. But the family was um, convinced that this was all an unwanted intrusion on their the person they cared about and why didn't we understand that she just didn't want to live anymore mm-hmm. and we're sure that they're the appropriate decision makers you sort of hinted at this or that we should at least ask of course yeah. it's one of the first questions you always ask mm-hmm. um you know i i imagine new york like many states has some sort of hierarchy if um you haven't appointed somebody so if she had a medical power of attorney or um, durable power mm-hmm. of attorney for healthcare. That person obviously would have been the decision maker. Barring any written documentation like that, you go to the next of kin. That would have been the sons. But we're sure that there isn't another person that she might have wanted mm-hmm. to make these decisions. So you know, certainty again is is a little bit hard <laughs> in, in the line of work that we're in. But uh, is in a good faith assessment of asking about that. We in New York State, uh, it's called a healthcare agent or healthcare proxy, uh, they were not aware of one. We had no awareness of one. Um, this was a number of years ago. There was not yet care everywhere, but um, we had no reason to believe that there was one. And you're right, the New York State Family Healthcare Decisions Act is the name of the law that allows for surrogates uh, to be uh, making decisions or family members. And it would allow for, for example, both a spouse and a Domestic partner um, in New York State would be even as the top, and then adult children would be next. 
So she was divorced from her spouse. They had no knowledge of there being someone else that she was involved with as a relationship. In New York State, you don't have to actually have a registered domestic partnership. It's more of a sort of a shared life, um, good faith assessment of a shared life with, with another person of any gender or sex. Uh, so it would be the two adult children. Um, you know, we were convinced that they were they had their hearts in the right place and they really were caring about her and they didn't have other interests that were specific or malignant in any way. They were they really thought this was right. Um, the ex-husband had been managing her finances for a while. She was kind of a mess. And um, the fact that he had access to those things gave us reason to believe that she had trusted him in that way. Mm -hmm. So we had that information, but we, we thought we had the right people. Um, and we was it was very important. This is where, you know, it goes kind of from what are the rules to now what is the process? Mm -hmm. um, the other part of the rule that's important is in New York State, surrogates don't have unfettered authority to make decisions to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatment. Oh, that's a right? big deal. They're, yeah. That is a big deal. So a healthcare yeah. agent would have more flexibility, and that would have been even more uncomfortable because mm -hmm. we wouldn't have been able to fall back on a rule. Uh, mm. um, but a, a surrogate um, or a family member who, in the, the top of the hierarchy there, a person has to be sick enough. Uh, there are very specific criteria. I can say them or not, as you wish, but they have to be sick enough uh, that um most reasonable people or many reasonable people would uh, agree that withholding or withdrawing a life-sustaining treatment was appropriate. Mm. So the distinction that you're drawing there, just, just for the, the, the sake of our listeners, is that uh, a healthcare advocate, is that, is that the term you use, healthcare advocate? Healthcare agent or agent. proxy. It's a um, healthcare is, proxy is a more common term. Is somebody who has been previously appointed, usually through a legal document of some sort, an advanced directive or something like that, who names a person to be their surrogate, whereas um, a, a surrogate or a family member isn't specifically named by the person, but um, just as a matter of course, we believe that the, the, there's a hierarchy of, it, it's actually, it kind of aligns with the, the closeness of relationship, right? So the proximity yes. of relationship. That the, right. the closer somebody is to you, the better they know you, and, and that's mm -hmm. the vir by that virtue do they get to make decisions. So um, it's interesting that there's a distinction in, in at least New York state law. The thought is, if the person actually chose them, that that's a uh, an avenue of fidelity between the two people, uh, mm -hmm. and so they're given more deference. Again, they still have obligations; they still do have to. Um, if we know something about the patient's wishes, we still hold healthcare proxies or agents as they are. Um, called in the law, frankly, but mm -hmm. proxies in common speak yeah. uh, to follow patients' known wishes if they know them or align with their values and their priorities if, if they are known. And the best interest standard of what how we would respectfully treat anyone as the bottom line. So even an agent or a proxy has to do that. Surrogates, um, we respect those relationships. And that law is relatively new in, in the course of history in New York State. It was passed in 2010. Um, I was part of the process of working on that um, statute, and it took a long time in New York State to, to develop that statute because defining closeness of relationship uh, in the sociological context that we live in today is complex, and um, many voices uh, chime into whether something is family or someone is family, and so uh, those relationships are 
through sort of fidelity and, and closeness and presumed proximity, um, but obviously being related to someone and, and knowing them very well and being able to speak their voice are not uh, absolutely the same. So we give great deal of, of deference to families. I personally believe an underrepresented person, I used before the term unrepresented, this might be a slightly underrepresented person. They were kind of estranged to a degree, but clearly cared, clearly know her, and we don't. Um, she, we guess too that the person may care about them, right? May care about how they feel. So that was playing on us too. Um, saying no to a family in a terrible situation like this is a really painful thing to do, as we imagine not only the interests of the patient medically, but their other concerns. They probably care about their kids. Um, they probably care about the ex-spouse who they're allowing into their lives in some way. And so making things worse for them is not really connected to our mission to try and be connected to the patient, you know. It, it complicates things in all that way. But we, we kept seeing her uh, with not just out there hope for recovery, but real hope for recovery. It was real. Yeah. And their fixation on her desire to die, knowing, and this is, you know, I think any clinician would, would be onto this, but as a psychologist, I was particularly attuned to it, recognizing that there's a long not well or adequately treated history of depression, you wonder who is the person? You know, is the person their depressed thoughts? Are those their authentic thoughts? Do we have the ability to treat successfully every person with depression? Maybe maybe she's had great treatment and she this is really her authentic self. We know that's possible. Or maybe there's still hope for for treatment for her, and that she might have a different perspective on her on her life. Um, her family couldn't entertain that other possibility uh, that maybe this time will be different. They had seen too much, you know. Mm -hmm. They had lived with her uh, behavior, her self destructive behavior. Uh, however, whatever their relationships were like, we got the vibe that they were complex. In fact, one of the children, one of the sons was actually at, not one of the sons that was pregnant. It turns uh, present. It turns out there was a daughter who wasn't present, who didn't want to be part of this, uh, who hadn't spoken to her, any of them for a while, who was drinking herself. Um, and they were all worried about her, too. There was this sort of tinge of anger in them, not only at us, but kind of at the patient loving anger, if I can present it that way. It's this frustration that they couldn't, she couldn't, you know, get well in some way. That's the best way I can put it. So given the limitations of the law and your sort of um, insinuation that prognostically she might be well, it sounds like they are not in a position to make life limiting decisions for her. Right. So here's, here's one of the rubs in the law. Um, she certain one of the issues is you know allegedly you need to have a, a six month terminal prognosis. We don't have that here per se. One of the criteria is that you're permanently unconscious. We don't have that here. But the third one is um, purposefully left to some interpretation and left to be interpreted by the surrogate, and that is the degree of burden. There's an extraordinary burden sort of loophole there. Still, even though surrogates have 
a fairly wide amount of power. It is a, still a shared decision between a clinician and a surrogate. So another week on a ventilator, for example, would probably not meet the extraordinary burden criteria for a clinician. This family was um, insistent that it was overly burdensome because she didn't want to live. And again, the window was going to potentially really close this time, right? So, you know, once we successfully wean her from a ventilator and she's no longer requiring uh, technological life support back where you were before, we still don't know exactly what she's going to be like. Um, she's got some, at best, we'll have some, a lot of work to do. There was a, you know, a broken ankle, a broken wrist, a dislocated other shoulder, uh, the wrist needed surgery. There was some work she's going to have to do. Um, we, we didn't know exactly where the brain would land. And so we, we were getting closer to this person now really having to endure the life that was going to be left, whether they, their family was right or not. Um, but we were convinced that um, we couldn't come to a shared decision that the family was understanding enough the possibility that her depression could be addressed uh, and that people do sometimes approach life differently after events like this, even if they've had an intractable course or a seemingly intractable course. And that again, the burden she had suffered was already there. You know, um, it, she had already endured so much, uh, it seemed unjustified. So we kind of fell back on that last statement in the law, but I think um, it was possible to swing, swing that either way. Um, you know, this term of involves such pain and suffering or the burden that it would be reasonable to consider it extraordinary or humane. Those are all words that you can yeah. play with. So we did fall back on it, I will confess. Um, but um, it can be interpreted in any way. I think most clinical ethicists, along with team members in this situation, would be uncomfortable supporting the with withdrawing of the ventilator at this point. But we did sort of come to a plan with them. Uh, the, I mentioned before that this is where you start relying to, on the process. Mm -hmm. So um, we spent many hours uh, with this family, as did the teams with us. Um, instead of, you know, we were past this have to push you immediately point, And now we were trying to understand each other better point. And that's a really important place. Um, we listened to a lot of history. We experienced a lot of their tears and angst. We let them sort of spill it for us. Um, and we did ag agree with them that if we couldn't ultimately wean her in a reasonable amount of time and liberate her from the ventilator, that moving to a tracheostomy and the need for functional rehab and things that would likely come after that, um, that that's a place that we could sort of bend. If it came to that, that she was declaring a different kind of prognosis that people with mental disorders should not be forced to endure if people without them are not forced to endure them. And so that's where you sort of get into this. We have to be careful not to over-treat people with psychiatric illness, recognizing that uh, however you get to your critical illness, you still should have all of the same rights as any person uh, to have your voice magnified by the people who care about you. Um, there's a lot you could unpack there. So I'll just 
Yeah, it's a but. it's a dense, multi layered case. So, um, we just I just want to be cognizant of the time um, you have yes. left for us. So, so tell us a little bit why this case continues to haunt you. So, um, it turned out really well. Um, they were able to wean wean her from the ventilator. Uh, she before that even. Um, she woke up enough so that we asked her, you know, if we wean you from the ventilator and, and you can't breathe again, would you want us to put the tube back in? And she said, yeah, she would want that, that she'd want to live. We had, you know, that there was so many variables that made her unable to necessarily get the bigger picture, but that was the statement, which gave the family a little bit of pause uh, for them to understand that maybe this would be different. <laughs> and she ultimately, um, you know, survived the critical injury with um, her mental status intact. She did get psychiatric inpatient care. She went into substance abuse rehab. It's many years later. Um, she did pretty well. Uh, there have been bumps in the road, but the relationships between her and family members have been improved. I lost track of it at somewhere along the way. So why does it haunt me? It haunts me because it could really have gone the other way. Um, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that just because things work out well, that doesn't mean that it was the right thing to do. You know, you sort of have to judge the decision points on the merits. Um, and so I, you know, people in, in uh, where I work, who, when we think about this case, we've even nicknamed the case. I'm not going to tell you what the nickname is just to try to keep it as confidential as possible. Hmm. But it's... Um, we often sort of re-raise it whenever someone gets critically ill as a result of a suicide attempt to be careful not to remember only how well it went, um, but to re-approach each decision uh, on the merits and in the moment and rely on the process. Because I know very well that that person may have lived with a very poor quality of life because of treatment that was forced on, on her against the family's objection. I think that's a very um, weighty thing uh, to do. I think it was the right thing to do, regardless of the outcome. And, and I, we thought really hard about how to move forward. But that's why I'm always yeah. humbled by what the alternative could have been. Yeah. Um, and you know, teams always. We didn't even mention this, and I know I see the time, and I had uh, asked to end it at a, at a particular hour. But I think this is important to say. Uh, teams have really strong feelings about being complicit in suicide, completing a suicide. Yes, yes. And uh, it's very important to, you know, as a clinical ethicist, to recognize that withholding life support and the, and sparing people the burden of life support they did not want, legitimately did not want, authentically did not want, is not completing a suicide. It's respecting the person's um you know, authentic value to not suffer any, the burdens of critical care, the same as anyone else. You know, we're, we're not pushing them off the building twice. You know, we are um, thinking about whether withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatment and the burdens of it are appropriate. So mm -hmm. that's something that comes up over and over again. Yeah, making that distinction and, and thinking through these questions with that degree of nuance is something that I think a uh, an excellent clinical ethicist really needs to be able to do with, with the team. So um, thank you for sharing that case. What a, what a, a difficult case for, for you and for the family, obviously, but also for the caregivers.
Yeah, everyone learned, I think, a lot from it. Um, humility among many things. Uh, so yeah, no, it was great. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm-hmm.